0: This episode is sponsored by New Calm, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living, and trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap. A 20 minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now there are so many other applications and benefits from this software. So I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download NuCalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on newcalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome two guests to the show, Alan Chason and Edward Ford. Now, Alan is currently a firefighter paramedic, but began his military journey as a Navy corpsman. Ed is a career Marine, and their paths intersected in the world of contracting, protecting what came to be known the Pony Express. So in this conversation we discuss a host of topics, from their individual journeys into the military, tactical medicine, some of the notable attacks and firefights, the world of contracting, some of the devastating losses they endured, protecting the military's mail, mental health, transition, their book Postcards Through Hell, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Alan Chesson and Ed Ford. Enjoy. Well, Alan and Edward, I want to say, firstly, thank you, not only for coming on the Behind the show podcast today, but your patience, obviously coordinating this, um, you know, it's been a challenge and then I had to rush back to the UK when we were supposed to do the interview. So um, I want to thank you firstly for coming on and secondly, for your patience.
1: Oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, thanks for having us, actually.
2: Yeah, thank you.
0: So I want to kind of walk both of you through your kind of your early life journey into the military, because I mean when you come together and, and what you wrote about in the book is there's so much there. But just to give some context of how you both got there in the first place. So Ed, well, let's start with you. Tell me okay. where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings.
2: Okay. My uh, yeah, born in uh, Boston, Mass. Uh lived in Jamaica plain most uh, most of the most of my life. And uh, uh, my father was a chef. My mom uh, was a nurse. Uh, you know, uh, it's just one of those things. You know, I'd always wanted to be a Marine, so uh ended up going, up, you know, after graduating high school, that's exactly what I did. I went down and uh, actually I uh, played hooky on uh, – I skipped school on my 18th birthday, signed my, signed my name on the uh, dotted line and uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps on delayed entry. And then, uh, like five days after I graduated high school, I uh, I was standing on Yellow Footprints, and the funny thing is, I don't. I was like, "All right, I'll, I'm just going to go there to get make get some money for college." But I end up really liking it. So after my first enlistment, I went out to Hawaii for a couple of years. Uh, then after Hawaii, I got over to Second Force, and that's where I really found my niche. It was in a uh, Force Recon. Uh, I mean. Just being with like-minded individuals, uh, guys that uh, focused on the mission and uh, uh, and were challenging, were challenging and pushing themselves. That was the big thing there. Uh, you know, you look at it initially when you walk there, like God damn, it, I don't know if I could do this. But then when you do that first event, then you pass the second event, then you get the third event, and before you know it, though, know, I mean, you're you're in a platoon, uh, you're you're in a team you're on patrols. Uh, yeah. Matter of fact, our, our first platoon and, uh, the first platoon I was in, in, uh, second force, we ended up deploying, uh, to uh desert storm. And if you remember, uh, the embassy, the, the little bit of the hubbub about the embassy takedown when we took back the embassy, that was our platoon piglet two, one, we took back the embassy in Kuwait city and, uh, yeah, the Army was not pleased with that because they already had, like, a big uh, hit plan, flying in Chinooks and everything else. So we took down the embassy, hung out there for a couple of days, and then we were told to get out of the city. As we're leaving the city, they even had a Blackhawk helicopter follow us out of the city to make sure we we left. And uh, I guess that's when they flew in with the, uh, the helicopters, and they all fast roped in. And uh, kind of funny, though, because we're sitting there uh, – before we left, we were like, police called the area, cleaned everything up. Uh, There was a couple of pictures there. We all signed them and put them back up on the wall, nice and neat. They had our names on them. And, uh, like, as we're driving out, we're like, man, we really hope we clean this place up really good. And, uh, turns out like the army went in there, blew open (laughs) doors, blew the place down, and it was like, they actually had to rebuild another embassy, uh, because of that. And, uh, yeah, but everybody's like, uh, but the media pool was like, you can't, uh, what are you saying you secured the embassy? We were talking on the Marines that were there like two days prior to you guys. And uh, yeah, nobody was happy. The Army wasn't happy about that. But uh, yeah, I stayed in the uh, second force uh, up until 96, went to New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico, was on part of the i INI. The, we, I worked with the reserve uh, recon unit out there in New Mexico for three years. And then uh, another, uh, I went over back over to First Recon Company right before they stood back up to a battalion. They were a company. Uh, picked up a platoon out there. I was a platoon sergeant now. Awesome job. I had a blast doing that. And yeah, uh, it, it was just, I mean, you, you're so influential in all those uh, younger recon marines, and uh, you get to mold them, help mold them. And uh, a lot of them are, you know, they... They, they take what you taught them, and they apply it later on. And uh, took a platoon out on float, came back. Uh, that was the float that the uh, coal got hit on. And uh, so my platoon, because we had divers in there, we, we, we provided some dive support for the uh, uh, recovery mission when the, the Blue Marlin came in, and they put the uh, coal on top of the uh, ship. They, they were uh, in the boats as uh, dive support. Uh, after that, uh, came back, was up in the S three doing ops and, uh, stuff like that. I was like, man, there's going gotta be more to it than this. And then, uh, another buddy of mine, uh, over at first force was like, dude, we're looking for people. If, uh if you're bored with the S three and I was like, you know what? I'll do one more platoon before I retire and get out. And, uh, yeah, I got to, uh, run around one more time with our uh, first force. And, uh, this time we went to OIF and, uh, uh, I was in fifth platoon then, but after uh, after the Marine Corps, I went right into contracting. And funny story about that is uh, another Force Recon guy, a buddy of mine. Uh, he had just retired, and he was working for the Crucible. And he said he sent out a mass email: "If you want to do this kind of work, making this kind of money, working with these kind of guys, send me your resume." So I shot him my resume. And that was my first gig. Was working with Dyncorp in uh, Af- in Afghanistan at the embassy. And then from uh, there, I went to. I did that for a year, and then I worked for Crucible for jeez, like two years, and then I picked up with Sock, and I picked up with Sock in, uh, with Sock in uh, 2009. And I just uh, the, that was pretty much the last company I worked with. Started off in Iraq went to Afghanistan, uh, did static site security. I, I, I was a statics. Uh, I was a security supervisor for the construction going on down at camp Chapman. And so whenever we had trucks coming in, I have to talk to the way up, uh, secure the actual security guys from Blackwater, let them know what was coming in. They'd search the trucks and, then uh, we'd bring them in. And, uh, yeah, after that, then I got on the convoy program with the uh, SOC, and uh, that's where we are. That's where I ran into L again. I ran into L, a matter of fact, the first time in uh, Iraq, Baghdad in two thousand five. So, yeah, and uh, since yeah, th- that's it, really.
0: Brilliant. Well, I want to a couple of things I want to pull from you before we go to Alan. Um, firstly, the USS Cole was that an Al Qaeda attack as well? Yes. So to yeah, talk they, to me they, they
2: about that. Right up to the side of it, and they blew the hole in it.
0: So from the perspective that you had, because not many, many people were really, you know, on that that attack. What were you know? What was the the tragedies and the heroism from that day that you heard or saw?
2: Oh, I mean, I guess uh, you know the ship was sinking in the harbor, and I mean, I guess I mean there was. Talk. There, I, I heard we heard that, that there might have been uh, some talk or like, hey, maybe we ought to just give up, give up the ship. But the captain of the ship was like, no, we stay and we're going to save this ship. And. Uh, uh, But, yeah, I think they lost like 19 on that ship there and uh, a whole bunch wounded, too. Uh, but uh, no. Yeah. From what I heard, uh, you know, the crew pulled together and that that's what saved that ship. Uh, they they the flooding and the fires. Uh, they were able to get it all under control, and then uh, they were able to fly in the uh, the like this all the support, like the Mudsu guys. They flew in from Bahrain, uh, and then uh, we were with the Mew, uh, the thirteenth Mew, I believe. Yeah, the thirteenth Mew, and we were in the Seychelles. They cut our libo short, and we all backloaded, and uh, we sh- uh, we sortied right up to uh, the Gulf of Aden. And then uh, that's when uh, they we started pulling all the security ops there. They put a rifle company on the beach in the harbor, so they had a, a, a hard area to work from, and plus uh, we kept a ship there also, so the FBI could launch its invest could run its investigation. Yeah oh, yeah, they flew the FBI out also for investigation and uh the forensics. So you're on scene
0: of that, and then a few short years later. The same organization attacks New York and and you know other parts of America. Yeah, you you know have already been in, in uniform for quite a few years by that point. What was your personal nine nine eleven experience and how did it change your world?
2: I was go- I was heading to uh work and I heard of- I was listening to the radio. I was driving into work at Camp Pendleton and uh, I heard about a plane uh, hitting a, uh, one of the towers. But I remember the Empire State Building back in uh, the '40s got hit by a B-25. It flew into the building in the fog. I was like, probably couldn't see, and, I, and I was, I'm thinking it's a smaller plane. And uh, now I'm sitting in the uh, Chow Hall watching uh, watching the first tower burning on fire. I'm like, wow, and then you and then you see the air the second jet uh, the, the second airliner in the background. It, it disappears behind the two towers and it doesn't come out the other side but then all of a sudden you see that second tower just a fireball shoot through it. and you know it was like I'm sitting there eating I'm like oh wow looks like we're we're going to war now I mean everybody <laughs> know, was just like oh wow and then uh yeah that was a big news a uh, whole uh, that whole time there was uh uh that whole day we were just watching as the towers fell up in the battalion, up at the Recon Battalion. And uh yeah, battalion commander uh, Colonel Ferrando, was like, Okay, get ready. <laughs> we might be going to war here. We just don't know what we are going to war. We just don't know when. So uh Yeah, that was uh th- yeah, that that was uh th- that was us. That that was when I knew we were going to war. So
0: where did never you find never- yourself deployed first was it afghanistan or was it iraq
2: iraq all my work in afghanistan was done as a civilian i was a civilian contractor uh oif was like uh, my last big up op- was my last operation with uh the marine corps uh uh we uh, the platoon i was in fifth platoon we took down Safwan hill and then uh later on we were up in baghdad uh just because uh, things were starting to, you know, a lot of people were get, starting to get killed that didn't need to be getting hurt. They were starting to use the force recon platoons for us, uh, uh, the surgical uh, CQB stuff to, for the clears uh, just to try to keep the civilian casualties down uh, up in Baghdad. Um, other than that, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, that, and then after, like I said, I mean, after I came back from that, uh, I was going to be retiring in six months, and uh, that's when uh, Chris Boyd sent out that uh, email, and that's what got me into contracting.
0: Well, let's bring Alan in then. So same question for you first, um, where you were born, and then what your parents did, how many siblings?
1: Well, I I was born in Toronto, Ontario. I've got uh, four sisters and one brother twin sister of course. uh, My dad was a welder, my mom's uh, a nurse as well. Uh, We immigrated to the United States um, I guess in 1964 and uh, we stayed there for a while and then uh, relocated to Arizona where I went to uh, high school. I was in uh, uh, NJROTC for three years and so when I went into the military I wanted to join the Marine Corps too but I wanted to be a medic so I went into the Navy Became a hospital corpsman so that I could be attached to a Marine Corps unit, but my military service was insignificant. I didn't, I never did anything other than training up until my discharge in 1981. And uh, when I was in the when I was in the Navy, I went to uh, a civilian uh, training program for uh, paramedics, and I became uh, one of the first, I guess, Navy corpsmen to to get uh, nationally registered as a paramedic under that program. And when I got out, since I was already nationally registered, I just started working uh, in uh, EMS uh, in 911, actually in uh, Oakland, California. So I kind of cut my teeth on 911 in Oakland, which they call that the, the knife and gun club over there. So I saw a lot of trauma and whatnot. Uh, after that, I uh, relocated back to uh, British Columbia because my parents had uh, uh, moved over there and uh, I was working mostly in the logging industry as a first aid medic. And then uh, they, you know, that industry is is uh, wrought with uh, a lot of unions and whatnot, and so they would strike quite often, and it was hard to get work in between. So I ended up coming back to the United States and got a job as a paramedic, and I was working uh on a uh, tiered service. It was a con- contracted nine one one service, so it was a private ambulance that was pulling nine one one out of a fire station, and these guys were making, uh you know. Maybe the a little bit more the same amount of money that we were, but they were they were running all the good calls and <laughs> we were getting all the crappy stuff. So I uh, I said I wanted to be a firefighter, so I went to the fire academy, and it's kind of funny because my my whole direction uh, towards where I wanted to to steer my career was in arson investigation, and uh, I I went to arson school and became an arson investigator, and and they said, well, if you want to get certified in the state of Texas, you have to be a peace officer. So I ended up going to the police academy. And, of course, when I was in the police academy, they found out I was a paramedic and and, uh, uh, wanted me to join a a SWAT team. So I ended up doing SWAT for about 10 years. And uh, I was also a member of Texas Task Force One. And uh, I deployed to uh, Hurricane Katrina. I actually did two two deployments back to back. And I met some Blackwater guys there. They were telling me they were hiring medics in, in Iraq. So I applied for that job and and I got it, and I went overseas and and one of my trainers was Ed. That's where I met Ed at uh, at Baghdad Hotel in uh, in uh, in Baghdad when he was working for the Crucible, and uh, so he trained me and uh, we became pretty good friends. and, and then he had uh, deployed to Afghanistan when he was working for SOC, and when my contract was up, my next job was working for SOC, but I was still in Iraq, and and over there I was uh, supposed to cover down for other medics that were going on leave. So I was jumping from FOB to FOB to FOB while these medics were out on, uh, on leave. And then uh, the last one I, I was at was at, uh, at uh at FOB Echo and that medic never came back. So I ended up staying there for like another three months. Um, and so while Ed was in Afghanistan, one of their teams got hit and uh, they didn't have a medic on the team. They, I mean, they, they all had training in combat lifesaver and they were able to take care of the situation, but they, they needed a medic and they needed somebody to put a program together for them. And, uh, they dropped my name in the hat. I just went from, uh, from, uh, echo to, uh, Afghanistan.
0: So a couple things, firstly, Oakland, when I think of Oakland in the eighties, you know, obviously that was, uh, as you said, knife and gun club, a lot of, uh, gang violence, especially back then Your introduction into ems talk to me about that what were some of the the career calls you had when you were wearing that uniform
1: you know that they, they they have a, a thing about differentiating between colors and a lot of these gang members they all basically dress the same uh they you know they might be a part of a different gang and they use colors to uh segregate the gangs but you can't tell one person apart from another and, um, uh, I think that they do that to minimize their incarcerations and whatnot, where you can't identify suspects and whatever or not, but there were, there are a lot of calls where, you know, if somebody's going to kill somebody, they want to make sure they're dead. And, uh, a lot of times you got out to a scene, you might not have the benefit or protection of law enforcement or whatever the case may be. And then you have to deal with the situation as it, as it arises. And there've been a lot of times where we've, we've been assaulted. Uh, we've had ambulances stolen. We've, we've, we've been, uh, People have pointed guns at us to say "leave them alone," that kind of a thing, and and whatnot. But you just, you know, you push through it, and you know that that's basically the nature of the business.
0: I know one of my uh, paramedic friends was transporting a gang shooting victim to the trauma center, and they were actually hunted down, and they are shooting at the at the ambulance at the rescue. And I don't know what happened; they've got spooked or something, so they didn't end up. You know, getting the driver or the medic, but I mean, terrifying. I mean, you're completely unprotected as a paramedic in the back of an ambulance.
1: Yeah, there, yeah, it's funny because there's been times when we got back to the station and there'd be bullet holes in the truck, but we didn't know that we were being shot at at the time. But yeah, that's the interesting thing. So,
0: now you worked, as you said, you you're paramedics, SWAT, um, yeah, law enforcement officer. What was your nine eleven experience, and was that what sent you into the military side again?
1: Not really. I, I mean, uh, I got out in 1981. So, I'm uh, like I said, there was really, aside from my experience as, as, a, as a corpsman, um, uh, the task force was probably the greatest motivator for me. I was, I was uh, on the tarmac getting ready to fly to Virginia when the, when the plane crashed. And so all flights were canceled at that point. And so I'm at the airport. Uh, you know, I was supposed to go to Virginia to do some training. Uh, with uh, uh, Darius Gonzalez on uh, WMD and uh, hazardous materials. And so I basically uh, turned around and, and instead of going home, I, I went to the, the task force to see what was going to happen because I knew we were going to be deployed. And we have, we have three tiers, uh, red, white, and blue. And it was the white team that was up. And so once they sent out the notification to uh, deploy to uh, New York for the World Trade Center, we all sat on the tarmac for a couple of days before we actually deployed and they ponied up enough people, uh, to send the white team there. And then, uh, our team was set up as backup. So, um, I went home, just watched the news and, uh, you know, just trying to stay in touch with the guys, you know, you get, uh, a lot of uh, video feed photographs and updates on uh, how the team was doing and whatnot. And then from there, um, uh, they mitigated the the situation in ten days, uh, as far as uh, uh, body recoveries and, and whatnot. I, I stayed with the the task force for about twelve years. I did other deployments like the uh, Columbia shuttle incident and uh, Hurricane to Katrina, uh, the Texas tornadoes. They did a lot, quite a bit of stuff as a USAR medic. I, my my job there was uh, uh, assigned to hazardous materials, so I there were. My uh, I was considered a WB specialist and I was the manager of the blue team.
0: I had some friends in Anaheim that went to Katrina and I remember vividly I was on probation still being in station six and uh watching Geraldo pitching on the television because he had come back to some bridge somewhere and the same people that were there last time he was there were still there and I remember thinking well why the fuck didn't you put him on your helicopter and fly them out then and the the reporting from katrina seems so opposite than the reporting from 9-11 that community that togetherness you know that we saw in new york the way it was being reported was you know there was the, the I mean, lit- the media was literally saying they're just getting the white people out all the black people have been left i mean it was absolutely horrendous and you know my friends that were out there one of whom was almost killed. Uh, the wash from one of the helicopters picked up a bunch of pallets and hit him in the head, almost killed him. Um, you know, I know what these men and women were doing. You know, for all these people of all colors and creeds that were in need at that time. So, what was your perspective of that deployment specifically?
1: Uh, the first mission, the objectives were clear. Obviously, human life is is the priority, and we rescued a number of people. It was interesting to see all of the other things that that kind of bothered me, uh, like animal rescues would be one thing that we weren't allowed to do. I, I, uh, I remember seeing this one dog that was standing up on a porch that was, uh, almost neck deep in water. And it, it was close to the, 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 uh, windowsill of the first floor of the building and this dog had been up there for so long that it was falling asleep. And, and so we pulled the dog into the boat. Um, not, not that it was we were going to try to rescue the dog, and, and we certainly didn't deviate from, from our plan, but uh, as soon as he got into the boat, he fell asleep and never woke up. And, you know, that, that kind of bothered me. And other times we would hear, like, babies crying, and we would go to to a house and find out that it's just like a cat that's stuck on the inside and, and whatnot. And, and uh, there were a lot of uh, people that had already perished in the storm that were body recovery is not the prime. A primary objective, and a lot of people were getting on our case because we weren't taking these people out uh, in in the process of trying to find people that were live victims, and so they they would be there for two or three days at a time, and and it was kind of sad to see, but again, I don't think they understood uh, what our our objectives were, and you know we can't take the time to try to explain that. I'm certainly not in a position to, to talk to the public. I'm not a PIO or anything like that, but we just have to you know avoid some people didn't even want to be taken out of their homes there were people there that hey can you get us some beer and cigarettes and then just bring them back and i was just going and we're not a taxi service you know it's we we just have to continue on with the mission the second deployment was was a lot harder uh the water was starting to recede we had a lot of decontamination that we had to do everywhere we had to go and research homes that hadn't been marked properly uh we had to forge our boats across areas uh it, it got to be manually uh intensive uh in terms of the uh, the amount of work that we had to do and it, it it certainly uh took its toll and as a matter of fact at the end of that uh deployment uh, uh another uh, hurricane night i think it was that hit in uh up near fort worth in texas so uh as soon as we got back another team ended up going there and, and so Houston was being evacuated and uh, I ended up just going to San Antonio and waiting it out because, uh, you know, 22 days, uh, it, it just, uh, it wore on you and I needed the time off to decompress.
0: Well, thank you again for that insight. I think it's important, you know, whether it's military, whether it's first responders, it's amazing how when you ask the people that were actually there, you know, you hear human stories and you hear, you know, just simply taking a dog out of its suffering to let it you know transition peacefully for example that's beautiful we don't see these you know if it kind of aligns with whatever political narrative it is at that moment and it's heartbreaking because i know that my brothers and sisters in uniform are out there risking their lives to do everything they can to save these people and i found it so disgusting that it wasn't reported that way that it was you know used as a you know as, as a porn by that point and you know and to, to have a reporter that isn't carrying people away, bitching about people not being carried away, for example, was like the, you know, that, that summed everything up as far as the way it was presented versus the people that were actually there doing the work.
1: Yeah, if I could um, caveat onto the paramedic thing, I, I when I had applied for a, a contractor job at I uh, initially applied as an international police liaison officer. I was going to go to Iraq to train uh, Iraqi police on on search and seizure and, and whatnot. And again, when I, when I got there, they found out I was the paramedic saying, oh, you would be better served on a PSD team and I, I didn't know anything about PSD, so it was kind of like on the job training. Uh, when I met Ed, I kind of latched on to him because uh, you know he was one of those kind of instructors that kind of put things on a ground level for you. And uh, I learned a lot from him. I actually wrote a couple of articles that got published, and he helped me out with that. We just stayed in touch, and and uh, when uh, I was I was ecstatic when they called up uh, for me to go to Afghanistan. I was more happy to be with him than I was to actually go to Afghanistan. So it was pretty cool. Well,
0: Ed, you um, Alan was talking about you needing a medic. So educate us on. Yeah, you know, the mission on what you were doing as far as the Pony Express and then kind of walk us up to the point where Alan joined you.
2: Okay. The, uh, the, the convoy, it wasn't known as the Pony Express until we actually picked up the mail contract, which happened a little bit later. But, uh, when we brought Al on, we were, uh, doing secure, we were escorting secure loads for a, uh, well, for, 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 for a government client. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Three letters. So we were escorting we were those loads, and that was our mission there, uh, just get the loads there and then uh, bring the empty trucks back so they can backfill them again. And uh, that was uh, Money Mike's team, uh, Mike Hardy's team, that got hit on the way to Schkin. Schkin is on, like, the uh, packy border. And uh, so they drove down through Gosney to Sharona to Organee, uneventful, just a long day. Then it was, all right, we're going to push on to, uh, skin. And, uh, they said, if you can make it past this, I forget what mile marker it was. Is that you can make it past 44 24. or 20, 24, 24. Yeah. They said, if you can make it past mile marker 24. You're going to make it clean. Uh, I think they hit them right at mile marker 24. <laughs> yeah, They sure did. They hit them right at mile marker 24. And that's when, uh, you know, they lit up the first vehicle that was cookies vehicle, uh, they ended up rolling, uh, flipping over, and then when uh, Mike got up to it, he—that's when he got out of the vehicle, cleared the vehicle, and was like, "Where the hell are they?" And uh, then they got back into the vehicle, but this time they had to fight their way off the X. And then they, as as soon as they got off the X, they see uh, Cookie uh, and the driver uh, Wolf—I think his name was. Uh, standing there right next to uh, one, one, one of the car uh, one, one of the fuel trucks that they escorted and i uh, was like dude we thought you were gone i was like yeah we didn't know how to get out and we saw the uh we saw the uh fuel truck drive by we're like okay we're jumping in that truck <laughs> so, they, <laughs> so they both ran up there and they opened the door and they just jumped up into the truck and uh and he drove them out uh then uh, mike uh, was able to drive out uh on his own, uh, with his vehicle. And, uh, then they made it to, sh- uh, the, uh, skin, the fire base there. And, uh, yeah, they, that's where they got debriefed by the, uh, client, the, uh, agency. And, uh, you know, then they had to uh, retrograde them back. Uh, they had to fly them back because I know our con- concussion, I think. Yeah. That, that ambush was caught on a satellite feed too. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And they were surprised. They're like, man, these guys are gone. We're going to lose all this fuel. These guys are, we're going to lose that team. They were shocked that they made it in with just minor injuries.
0: So, talk to me about, you know, that early point where you're not protecting the post specifically yet. You know, what we, when we think of IEDs, obviously we're thinking of patrols, we're thinking about, you know, the hummers and all those getting hit. Talk to me about the, the, um, the danger that it was simply logistically moving supplies and, and the protection that you needed to give to them.
2: Oh yeah. Because, well, you know, they had to be a secure load because, well, there's, there's so much corruption over there. They, if, if you just sent those trucks out there on the road with the drivers, they probably would have sold everything either aid to the Taliban or they would have been, uh, you know, selling it off for themselves. Um, you know, so yeah. So you have to deal with the logistics of, uh, moving that moving those trucks because those are local truck drivers and uh you no know, and surprisingly they were move, they there was always that concern are they buying drugs down and uh from one place and moving them to another and this is why it was nice i was a military guy but uh so is like contracting was my first time really working with uh uh cops and that's when you realize man these guys bring a lot to the table like, you got to search a vehicle for anything, send your cops in. They know where all the hiding spots are. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah, and the Afghan, the, those drivers, sometimes you see them because, you know, I remember uh, Money and uh, Cookie would go up there. They knew right where to go. Boom, boom, boom. And they were pulling all, all the contraband, a lot of it drugs. And uh, it was like, all right. And, and they would just, uh, yeah, they, they 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 would get it destroyed is what they would do. But uh... yeah.
1: it just it wasn't just IEDs, though. It was RPGs, small arms, fire, IDF, all kinds of shit. Uh, I mean, when they attacked you, they attacked you with everything. And they they did it with a purpose. You know, it was uh, try to choke the column, hit the first vehicle. Uh, sometimes these drivers wouldn't stay on the X. They would try to back out or leave or even ditch their vehicles. And, and and the next thing you know, now you've got to be able to jump into the, one of their vehicles and, and figure out how to drive that. So, I mean, everybody was trained. Uh, you know, to, to drive the vehicles. And, and uh, we did a lot of uh, training and tactical tire changes, uh, uh, towing out vehicles, pushing out vehicles, cross decking the whole nine yards. So yeah, it, they were dangerous, dangerous missions.
2: Yeah. And uh, yeah, so yeah. So you're dealing with the corruption. Now you're also dealing with the Taliban, the complex ambushes. And it wasn't like Iraq where they, they would just pop off an IED and uh, that's it these guys were running complex ambushes all the time. They wanted to fight us. They wanted to fight us. And we were like, God damn, man. Uh, Yeah. I remember Chris Vale. when we, when I first picked him up and I briefed him up on that and he was like, ah, a worthy adversary. I was like, dude, be careful what you wish for. Uh, But yeah, like Al said, it was all a lot of rehearsals. I mean, what to do on enemy contact, but also the uh, mundane also how to take down a refueling site, how to change a flat tire, how to set up a toe, uh, how to cross-deck the wounded. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the, uh, the, the the routine stuff that you need to do, too. Uh, oh, shoot. But uh, other than, um, you know, what am I? I'm, I'm missing something here. It's, I, it's, no, no, I you're, know, you're-
0: Yeah, you're fine. Actually, I'm going to throw a question in for you quickly. When I first started doing the podcast, um, there was a lot of uh, avoidance when it came to drugs in Afghanistan. And then I don't know what happened. There was a shift about four years ago, people were like, totally, you know, open to it now. So I don't know if some kind of, you know, gag order was lifted or what. But when you look at the harm that the illicit drug trade is done domestically that's why we have you know gangs like uh, alan was talking about in oakland if you take away the drugs you know that's the ability to make money you probably disassemble a lot of these 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 gangs but a lot of the the military guests that have come on now was saying about especially the opium and that funding a lot of the terrorism that you guys were fighting now you're seeing all this smuggling was there a connection through your eyes back then
2: I mean, we knew it was there. I mean, I remember on uh, my first contract with DynCorp, we flew down south. Uh, the DEA wanted to tra- talk to this drug lord. And we landed, and we're looking at acres. And I mean, acres and acres and acres of poppies. And it looked beautiful. It was all, like, pink and of the, like, of the pinks and the whites and stuff. You're like, wow. And it was like, that's 90% of the world's heroin trade. And we were, at first, we were pissed off at the warlord. we like, dude, man, what, what are you doing here? He's like I'm a businessman I don't use this stuff but you know what people they want it I'm gonna provide it and I I'm providing a good quality product here uh, you know when the demand goes away I'll grow something else <laughs> it's like and it, how do you answer and he's like ah so it's
1: it's weird because uh, harvesting opium is not illegal in Afghanistan I mean it that's that's their uh, that's their trade and uh it's weird because in colombia they have like dyncor was running uh uh, cocaine eradication programs and i thought well why don't they do that here and that was kind of confusing to me because these guys these farmers they're not drug dealers they're just they're just cultivating a product that's that's needed and you know uh unfortunately a lot of that money went to the taliban and 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 supported terrorism um it, it was really nothing that we could do about it as far as that was concerned but uh, I think our main our main focus was operational security. And uh these people that were trying to take advantage of us um uh, as a team or were we uh tasked with a mission, we have to we have to deal with uh uh the corruption of these uh, local nationals. Uh SOC could not operate in Afghanistan without a counterpart, uh, which was called SOC A, uh SOC for Afghanistan. And that was uh, designed to twofold. It was one, to give local nationals an opportunity to get work and two, to stimulate the economy, which is putting American dollars back into the economy. And so we had no choice but to hire some of these LNs. Um, we certainly used them as our top gunners. And then, of course, our drivers, they they came from all over the place. I mean, they were uh, Somalians, they were uh, uh, Indians, they were uh, uh, Afghanis, they, 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 and they, the vetting process went through soft case. So we didn't really have a choice on who was driving these vehicles. Um, Whenever we got a mission, we would ask, you know, uh, have to try to search the vehicles, look for cell phones and whatnot, because a lot of times these guys were giving up our locations, our, our, uh, our timings, our routes and and things of that nature. And it became difficult to to work in that environment. So it was a never ending uh, conundrum of, 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 Operational security that was uh, 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 causing problems for us on these missions.
0: Well, it's just interesting because looking at it at the lens of the user, I think the U.S. I think we consume seventy-five percent of the world's opiates, and we're four percent of the world's population. So when you look again, and we're going to get into it, you know the mental health crisis that exists, whether it's in in uniform, whether it's the average person, and the way that we've viewed addiction for a long time, you know, criminalizing it and locking people up that in turn was ultimately feeding you know was was funding the terrorism you know indirectly so it's it's just really i think important to hear all the stories of all these different people in these different layers so that we you know the the brits the the americans whoever's listening and whatever country you're from can go ah oh, okay we can we can see a much bigger picture than you know good guy bad guy and you know guns and money and there's a lot more if you Think about all the crime that the prohibition of drugs has created, the same way as alcohol did with um, you know, uh, Al Capone. You know, it, it's not just on our shores, it, it reverberates to other countries and even some of these wars.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, I remember, uh, yeah, we, we, going back to the uh, the uh, Afghanistan with the uh, opium. I mean, the during the harvest time, they call it the thresh. They'd actually slow down the fighting season just so they can get out there and harvest the uh, opium tar. What they would do, one day they would go out there, they would cut all the bulbs. You know, you'd see all the Afghans online with a razor, with a knife, just cutting the bulbs. Then like two days later, they come by with a big pan. Uh, They scrape it. So you do the cut. A couple days later, you do the scrape. And then like the next day out, you're doing another cut. You can get three cuts out of a poppy bulb. So, uh, out of like a two-week period, you would like uh, get all that all that opium all that opium tar out of the poppy bulbs, and then they'd uh, bag it all up, and then they'd move it across the border. Depending upon where you're at, down south they'd get or along the uh, RC East they'd get it into Pakistan. Up north they'd uh, get it into uh, the other countries up there like uh, Tajikistan. Uh but yeah, they would actually slow down the fighting just so they could move get that harp that opium tar harvested and moved out of the country. So I mean everybody could make their money. Because everybody made money. The A made money, the ANP made money, everybody was make everybody was in on the take out there when, when it came to the opium harvest. And then, you know, once they got it all, boom, fighting season back on again. It was it was it was it was weird like that, uh, you know. It's like, all right, man, we're gonna go, we're going all out to kill all these guys, well, to go kill each other. All right, let's take a break here. All right, let's. We just need to go ahead and harvest our uh, drugs here, and then uh, two weeks later, they're back at it. You know, uh, they got it all out, and everybody's making their money. Uh, it was saw quite a few farming
1: plots with marijuana as well. I just. I oh, figured yeah. that was for, for, for local use, you know, with the elders and whatnot. Yeah, the, the hashish. Yeah. I mean, I remember yeah. th-
2: those was like some tall plants, like six, seven foot tall. And you was like, you could walk by them and you'd smell me like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I mean, the thing this is that you, you said um, that's how they made their money. I think this is the the thing is whether it's Mexico or Afghanistan supply and demand i heard that mexico some of the cartels are moved into avocados now someone was telling me the other day because there's such a demand and i just have one today so obviously i'm part of the problem there but you know <laughs> you can you can fund that supply or that demand you know in, in in a healthy product coffee you know vegetables whatever it is so you know still empowering the farmers with just taking the power away from from some of the shitbags of the world
2: yeah you
1: like- know, i think that's that's uh, the ideology behind the reconstruction as well you know i mean in uh, the america's efforts in and trying to uh, create a different type of uh, uh, economy kind of fell to the wayside after we, uh, after we uh, all ended up leaving, you know, I mean, uh, it, you know, one objective is to, you know, to try to take back the country. The other objective is to try to, to uh, help the economy get along, uh, train these people so that they can have regular jobs, things like that. And then uh, all of a sudden we leave and everything goes back to the, the way it was before if not worse so
0: yeah it's heartbreaking i mean a number of people i've had on the show whether they're allied forces or even afghan nationals that have come on since you know and they're talking about what what they're going through now you know the starvation the cold you know, and the taliban and then you know the eviction from pakistan all these things that are happening simultaneously where a lot of people now are left you know so helpless after the the war yeah
2: i mean i'm going to say about the i mean i mean if if you spent any time on the ground and you interacted with the locals you i think uh and i think you all we all saw that once we leave here this place is going back to the taliban yeah you knew and in all, advance i mean we we all knew it was going to happen uh, i remember when i was leaving afghanistan for good in december 2012 i ran a, a buddy of mine was an rso up at the embassy I hung out, had lunch, and I was, uh, yeah, man, six months after we're gone, we pull out, this place is going back to the Taliban. And he's like, uh, one of the uh, RSOs was like, six months? Dude, how about six weeks? And I was like, wow. Uh, yeah, it wasn't, turned out to be six days. Yeah, oh, six days. Oh, yeah, it, it, it was like really, yeah, it went way too fast. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, we all saw it come. We all knew that, hey, this place is going to go back to the Taliban. But uh, you know, uh it, it just, just uh we just had no plan for it. <laughs> so I think
0: that's that's the unified voice I hear is I think most veterans will look in the mirror and know that they made a difference. And I've heard so many stories. I mean, I ask, you know, yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of two-sided story. Um, you know, and they talk about the kindness and compassion of you know, the the veterinary surgeon that helped the local animals and you know, the the kids you know playing football with the kids all all the the human moments that you guys had and and empowering women and rebuilding schools and hospitals and water supplies so that was all good but at the same time to withdraw the way that we did um you know that's absolutely jamming a finger in the wound as well of all the the men and women that we lost the limbs that were lost the mental health that was lost in you know in defense of that country and i think it was a slap in the face to anyone who served the way that we did it
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, There was no plan. I mean, there was a plan, but it was just never executed. The Biden administration just said, nah, it'd be, we're going to go ahead and shut down our major air base first, and then we'll uh, play by air. I mean, we left all those interpreters, uh, everybody that worked for us for like 20 years. Uh, you know, we left there. And, uh, you know, I remember when that withdrawal was going down, I'm on the signal and uh, with a bunch of us from... Uh, we were working over there uh from the, my embassy from my first gig over in the embassy in uh, 2004 but we were all still stayed in touch and uh you know we were just trying to figure out how can we get these help get these guys out and uh you know it's like hey try to make make it to the Panjshir valley Now nah, can't do it all right get north get to, get up to mazar sharif and we'll get we'll try to uh, get you guys across the border and uh we got some guys out but uh Jeez, I mean, there's still a bunch of that I know of that didn't make it out. And uh, it's just a matter of what's going on now with them. Because, uh, yeah, the Taliban knew that, that those height machines that they used to scan their retinas, you know, they knew how to work those. And uh, once they scan that retina, it's either kind of come back as a suspect or an employee, U.S. employee. And if you came up as a U.S. employee, you were about to have a bad day. And, uh, yeah, that's what the, you know, we left all of them, so... Yeah, but I think we have a bad hiss, bad habit of doing that, too. I mean, look at what we did in Vietnam. We left we left off of our rooftop there, so...
0: Yeah, exactly. And someone was saying, I forget which guest it was, but, you know, the next time that we're asking a nation to come fight side by side, they're going to point at those two and go, you yeah. know, we don't trust you. And that's that's sad because they trust the people that were actually there, but just the decisions are so often... You know of of the the few people that don't even show up to an actual war, they just make decisions from the safety of their own homes, you know, and now they've they've uh damaged the potential relationships of allies in the future
2: oh yeah, i mean I wouldn't want to work for the u i mean if 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 i was if if I was like over in one of those foreign countries u s came in, I'd be very hesitant on uh putting my family at risk to work for the u s it would have to be I'll will go ahead and sign on, but you're getting my family out. They have visas right now. They have visas. You're going to give them training, and then you're going to give them jobs, or else Absolutely. I'm out. And uh, yeah, that's 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 the only way they're going to get uh, interpreters. I think from the uh, for the next go round. So,
0: uh, well, Alan, I want to bring you back in. Um, Ed had talked about initially not. Um, protecting the post so talk to me about that transition and let's bring you in when you first got boots on the ground in afghanistan
1: (laughs) well they were doing a vehicle recovery so when i got to afghanistan i they left me at the airport i was nobody there to pick me up and i didn't know where where the uh compound was and and whatnot and i was just going, oh crap and uh, you know money mike talks about uh trial by fire uh i just jumped in a cab with another a contractor that was working for a company called parsa which was an ngo and uh that that cab took her to her compound and then uh i knew that we were in uh, uh the shar arni uh district and uh and so the cab driver took me back there and i kept thinking he i mean he could just take me to taliban headquarters right now and and, and get whatever money uh uh, uh an expat could garner but um uh, we drove up and down these streets in this district until i finally saw a guard in a sock uniform and i said hey turn right here <laughs> and he turned right and i think i spent about three hours in that cab looking for that compound and i finally found it and i got out just as i got out those guys showed up with the vehicle that they had recovered and i was just going hey man nobody picked me up at the airport well we had to, this was a priority and i was <laughs> going okay well thanks <laughs> i feel the love <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you hit the ground running uh you know so your first day there is you know you get billeted uh we were in a really small villa that was kind of split in two where admin was on one side and ops were on the other um just unpack your stuff and then get get to work um we had ordered some uh some uh, f-550s that hadn't arrived yet so we were running local psd missions for people to and from the airport uh, taking the client here and there, uh, some recon missions and whatnot. And I saw that our uh, our medical supply was really grossly depleted. We had uh, we had some med stuff, but a lot of it was expired. Some of it was the packaging wasn't really good and whatnot. So I just went to work, and every time I went on a mission with uh, any crew to a fob or whatever, I would hook up with uh, uh, the medics at that location, and I would say, "Hey, what can you spare here and there?" And just started stockpiling uh med gear and whatnot and that was my first priority was to get all that stuff going
2: <clears throat>
1: after that i uh put together a, a medical profile cards for all of the operators so that if anybody got injured at the time uh and they weren't able to speak for themselves we had information on their their blood types their allergies their meds their medical history uh and their emergency contact information and i, I kept the master with myself and then each uh, each operator had a card that they had to carry in a specified uh pocket on their on their vests uh and then we started training up the guys in uh, combat lifesaver and uh, teach purple c um and then we got the gun trucks in and we started running missions there um i actually left in 2009 uh just before they picked up the mail contract um but we had already done missions uh matter of fact we we did a mission down to kandahar and when we got to kandahar Uh, They had another mission back in Kabul, so they split our team up. So Ed came down to give us the news and said, "Okay, you and I are going to go to Herat, which is through Taliban country. And the other the other rest of the team are going to take a a gun truck and the rest of the vehicles back to Kabul. Uh, And so him and I ended up running this suicide mission to Herat, just with uh, (laughs) with one gun truck and a lead vehicle. And that I mean, I was shitting bullets because uh, we drove through Helmand province we saw a lot of activity where the army was engaging uh military uh the road was just littered with uh blown out vehicles and, and evidence of of several attacks and it was just like man you got to have your head out of swivel and i kept thinking man I, I wonder what he's thinking And i'm thinking that he's wondering what i'm thinking <laughs> and we you know we we pulled that mission off and, and uh uh they dubbed that when we finally returned they dubbed that the thousand uh, kilometer club because we ran uh one of those missions uh non-stop in, in a 24-hour period
2: yeah going from
1: Herat to kandahar back up to kabul yeah yeah the, the, 1, K- 800 eight hundred and eighty one kilometers or something like that they, they just called it the thousand kilometer club
0: so so as you get into that role um talk to me I and mean, we would call it a, a career, call in the fire service, but you know, you wrote so many about so many, uh, um, elements when it came to the book, but walk me through kind of chronologically some of the big events, some of the the losses of lives that started to really impact you and your team.
1: Well, uh, that was more, that was more, uh, with Ed. He, he saw quite a bit more contact contact with, uh, than I did, um, uh, most of the stuff that happened with me was in 2012. And the, it's it's kind of strange because the book goes from 2009 to 2012. But the contract actually ran until December 24th of 2016. But everything from 2012 to 2016 was classified. So we were actually uh, not allowed to write about any of those contacts. Um, we weren't allowed to mention any names. We weren't allowed to give any mission specs because... Uh, the the prime, which is the the person that holds the contract, um, uh, is uh, classified. So, uh, we could we we couldn't talk about any of that stuff, and it, it you know we both kind of feel bad about it because there were a lot of guys pre 2012 that were still on the missions post 2012, uh, and right when you get to that that period of time where where I left, uh, the book kind of stops, and so we we just kind of created the ending of it which was with my, uh, team leader, uh, Aaron Kirch. He, uh, he, he sent us a letter, you know, called the immortals and, and whatnot, and talked about a lot of the stuff that we did. The, the last person that got killed on my, uh, stick was uh, a QRF. So they team was out near, uh, Jlalabat and they took a hit and, um, the top gunner was killed, uh, instantly. And of course the, uh, rear gun truck had smashed into that other vehicle. And, uh, their uh, navigator suffered some injuries but we had to go out there and recover them and that was one on my birthday and two on the the night before we were actually uh getting ready to uh end of mission so it was like our last night we were supposed to go to sleep and then go to the airport the next day and we ended up running this mission at the last minute so um most of that stuff was with Ed. um i helped him uh write up about a lot of that stuff because as we were talking uh he was telling me about all these things that uh you know these guys don't get credit for anything uh we're contractors we're there we're getting paid all this money blah 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 and uh we've been dubbed mercenaries we've been called warmongers and, and all kinds of other things like that but um it that's not the truth it's not the case at all we're just trying to do uh we're guys that have a skill set that are trying to do a job and um uh, we, we, aside from not getting the credit, uh, guys were treated on the teams. They were treated differently uh, when it came to repatriation and all kinds of things. So we had guys that got killed that were uh, sent home as cargo as opposed to uh, the military honors and whatnot. And, you know, how w- what kind of a position are we in to help them? And how can we help their family uh, members and, and whatnot? So, I mean, that tore on us quite a bit um and people don't realize a lot of the things that we went to because we you know we formed this brotherhood we're we're out there we're working these together and we don't care if you're from uh, bosnia or serbia or macedonia or fiji or fiji or or whatnot we're just we're all there doing the same job taking the same risks and uh it kind of tears on you because you can't do anything about it
2: yeah i mean uh i remember my first guys uh I had my first mission there. I had an EVAC on uh, my uh, my vehicle, as a matter of fact. We, were, we tried to circumvent a roadblock. They were like, yeah, go down through there, cut through that village and pick up the road. I pick, you can pick up the highway a little bit later. And uh, ended up hitting a landmine. And uh, it uh, I was out of the vehicle at the time trying to scout a route. And, uh, you know, I heard it. I looked over and it was like slow-mo. I just saw the cloud come up. And I saw the rear bumper flying off, and I was like, "Oh no!" And I immediately I thought it was like a, an ambush. So I jump into a ditch. Uh, Buddha jumped into a ditch, and uh, it was just, it was just a mine strike. There was no follow on fire. So we get down there. We're running down there. Uh, somebody, I think it was Buddha, that yelled out, "Hey, I think we're in a minefield." So now we have to sit there, slow down, uh, step in other people's footsteps. Get to the casualties, treat the casualties, and then uh, after that, we—I uh, uh, tried to burn the vehicle. Uh, we're starting to drive out of there. We link up with the army. The army set up an LZ for us. Uh, we got—they brought in the Blackhawks. we were able to get the uh, casualties out, and they flew them right over to Kandahar. And then, because uh, that gun truck wasn't a complete burn, I uh, they. The army, I told the army, hey, if you got. You guys can go ahead and destroy that. And they brought in a couple of helicopters and they each fired a couple of rockets into it. And then you could hear them talking on the radio. yes, yeah, there's nothing left of that truck but a couple of axles. I was like, oh, thank you. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was like, uh, and those guys all lived. But uh, because the trucks we had were flat bottom, uh, there was no dissipation of the force when it came through, when it hit the vehicle. So all these uh all the gunners in the back had massive lower extremity injuries. Uh even when I left, they still weren't walking right. And then uh then the next time I was in uh I was on my way to Schkin, as a matter of fact, on my way to Organee. And uh we had just uh I was just pulling around a corner. My vehicle wasn't, I saw a big cloud come up in the air and I was like, oh shit. And I'm a i I'm on the uh radio to lead. I'm like, Lead, this is hammer. Lead, this is hammer. And uh nothing. And as soon as I popped the corner in the vehicle, you could see the lead vehicle down, the doors all blown open. I was like, whoops. So boom, I, me and Buddha deployed and I said, All right, hit the pings because we had the uh distress pings. We hit the pings and then uh I called to the talk, and I was just talking to JJ, and I was like, "Activate the EMS, activate the QRF." Where well, I got vehicle down, I got men down, and we ran up to it. And uh, I remember as I'm running up to it, uh, up to the vehicle, I saw this brown form on the ground. I thought it was a sleeping bag. I'm like, "All right, please just let this be a sleeping bag." And I. Grabbed the sho—I uh, grabbed the bat. What was that? That was a bag. It was a shoulder. And I was like, as, as soon as I was getting close, I knew it wasn't a sleeping bag. Grabbed the shoulder, turned him over, and it was my interpreter for Wad. Uh, he was killed instantly, and uh, on his way out. It's it's weird how you uh, uh process it because uh he must have clipped his legs on the edge of the gun tub on, this, on when he got shot out of the vehicle because uh his legs were amputated at the knees, but to show you how quick he died. He was dead, but probably before he left the vehicle, there was no blood. I mean, there was no blood at all from uh, where he was laying. I was like, and then Buddha was right behind me. it. now he's a uh, paramedic instructor. Uh, he'd been on, he'd been working the streets for a while, so he he had seen lots of death. And I must have, I must have turned around and looked back and given him that stupid look, like, "Gee doc, can you fix this guy?" And he's like, "Fuck him, he's gone. Let's go." And I was like, "Yeah, no shit, let's go." Boom. Ran to the vehicle, and then it was all about working to save the living. And uh, John uh, jumped into the back, working on the two gunners, and I saw Scott as we were running up, my ATL, Scott Brown, running. Well, he wasn't running, but he walks out of the vehicle carrying an AK, and he walks up this uh, hill, and I'm running after him now. And I finally catch him. I'm like, dude, you okay? And he's like, dude, I'm all fucked up. I'm on adrenaline right now, just so you know. And I was like, whatever you do, do not leave here all right i need to know where i can find you ran back down we pulled perro out of the vehicle uh he was coughing up like huge amounts of blood uh, i mean because that uh id went off probably right where the interpreter was sitting but right behind the driver also and it just uh it just blew out all his uh it just destroyed all his innards uh so he was coughing up huge amounts of blood he was unconscious uh, we put him on the stretcher, got him out of there, uh, got him into the back of the other gun truck. And, uh, you know, Pickett was just trying to go to work, uh, trying to save him. But uh, I think he knew, but, you know, there's, you, you just don't give up. I mean, amongst those paramedics in the docks, they don't give up. Uh, he, uh, he, so I was like, all right, let's go grab uh, Scott. We're going to get out of here. He goes up the hill to go get Scott. I thought Scott could still walk by that. By now I'm still thinking Scott could still walk and I'm turning the convoy around, getting it ready to roll out. And, uh, he, ca- he carries him down and I'm looking at him like, Oh shit, this ain't good. So I run over to him when he's on the ground and he's like, dude, you're going to have to take him from here. So I just picked Scott up and I ran him over to the other gun truck. And, uh, I think it's kind of funny now but at the time it wasn't, he's like, all right, whatever you do when you put him down, be careful. And Scott's weight just shifted on me. And I was, I was like, don't. And I just dropped him right on the bumper. Now, he's got a broken back and a fractured pelvis. That's what he ran up that hill with. That's why I still consider him one of the toughest dudes I've ever met. Uh, and uh, But when I dropped him on the uh, bumper, he's like, ah, I'm like, oh, fuck. I'm sorry, bro. I'm sorry, dude. And uh, yeah, God, yeah. And uh, we get, we got, we, we got everybody back in the vehicles. Scott, because of his injuries, he had to stand until we got back to the Uh, Oregon e. uh he, he manned had, the he manned the PKM. He manned the PKM for the next three hours because we couldn't stay on the roads anymore because that's where the IED was. So we had to stay in the stream beds. Now we're rock hopping, and now every time that gun truck was doing this, Scott was going bone on bone on his pelvis and in his back uh yeah you could hear him screaming for the next three hours and i was like oh man this ain't fucking good uh you know uh we had to get out one time uh because we saw something weird sticking out turns out it was wires that could have been from an ied they were just waiting for us to drive over it so we had a skirt the civilians were skirting around it so we skirted around it uh you know, I'm like, I'm looking at Scott. I'm like, dude, you just gotta suck it up, man. I'm sorry, you just have to suck it up. I think uh, Buddha gave him like the max amount of uh, morphine you're allowed to give somebody uh, because any if if you went over that, I think it was like 10 milligrams or 10 milligrams, yeah, yeah. Because over that you could throw, you could shut down their heart. Uh, so you yeah, know, so Scott just had to suck it up for three hours. I remember that, and I remember uh. Yeah, we lost uh, Perot, because I remember when we first got the convoy going again, uh, it was one dead and uh, four wounded, and uh, about 10 minutes later, Buddha comes over the radio, be advised we're now at three patients, and I was like, ah, oh, fuck, we lost Perot, so I had to call back to the talk, and my driver, a but he, he was Perot's buddy, and I was like, hey, yeah, we're, we're now down to three pa- three patients and uh, two KIA." And uh, they are like, all right, who'd you lose? I was like, fuck, man, I don't want to say this. Right next to uh, Perro's friend here. I was like, all right, yeah, it was Perro. And uh, yeah, that was Marich that was the driver. And he's like, God yeah. damn. Uh, so we finally got uh, back to the uh bar at Organee. And uh, it was weird, though. They're like, yeah, we're going to – I'm talking to the client at this time. I'm like, all right, vehicle down. We're inbound with casualties. I need a QRF. I need a medevac. Yeah, we were on our own for that one. So for the next three hours, we drove out, and then we finally make it to the hardball. That's where the uh, QRF was sitting. I was like, "You guys couldn't go in there and help us out?" Uh, yeah, they wouldn't leave the road. Yeah, yeah, they wouldn't leave the hardball. Uh, so uh, we finally get everybody up to the uh, medical. They took the ca- They took the two dead out. They put them in the uh, uh, the freezer, which is a makeshift morgue. And then, uh, we got, uh, all the wounded into the, uh, cache. And then, uh, yeah, then after, uh, they were being all taken care of, Buddha went over to the, uh, to the two KIAs, uh, to the af- uh, to our interpreter. And, uh, he knew, a lo- he, he knew, he he's a, he's a practicing Buddha. So, I mean, he just knew how to take care of the body. So he, uh, wiped it all down and then, uh, made sure it was all, all good. And then, uh. Put him back in the uh, body bag. And then uh Pero uh yeah, he, he cleaned him up too. And then uh yeah. Then after that, you know, I mean once we got everything all settled down, we went back up there, the uh two Afghans were sedated, and then uh the uh uh Scott was lying there. We're all sitting there talking to Scott, and then the kind of funny story here, because uh the doctor comes in he's talking all right talking feeling up you know doing the squeezing stuff and then he goes on and under the tailbone and pinches up on the tailbone and Scott screams is like yep yeah, that's broken too and i was like oh shit but <laughs> for some reason it was like we all look at each other and it's like gay jokes start coming out right there <laughs> <laughs> All the gay jokes had to come out. We had to do it. <laughs> you know, oh, poor Scottie. He can't buck back. <laughs> at, oh, Scott. <laughs> and, and, no, he can't laugh because of his injuries. And it hurts him to laugh. So he's laughing. He's crying because of the pain. And we just kept on <laughs> with the jokes. <laughs> but, yeah, that's how we put him on that medevac. And he's like, all right, man. But, yeah, he's he's. I'm, I'm sure that he'll always remember that. <laughs> So he actually came back. Uh, yeah, yeah. He came six he... months later, yeah, six months later, he came back. And uh he's like, Yep. I asked him, dude, why are you back here? He's like, fuck that. I leave this shithole country on my terms, not on the terms of some trigger man who got lucky. I was like, There you go. <laughs> yeah, do it on your terms.
0: I want to just put something in and then we'll get to um Matt and Chris, because obviously Based on the book, again, that was a a pretty brutal loss for you. Um, When initially you were talking about protecting cargo specifically, then the mail starts becoming part of what you're protecting as well. When I watched the little kind of um, 10-minute front-style feature they did on you, it did a good job of underlining the value of that male for the actual warfighters themselves. So talk to me about how you got that contract and, and the impact that the male reaching our men and women was having as far as, uh, you know, their own emotional status.
2: Yeah. That, that we got that contract. Uh, I guess uh, somebody else had it before and they weren't pulling it off. So they rebid the contract. Sock got it. And then that's when we expanded the program. We actually went to four teams, so we we're going to have three teams on the deck at one time, and two of those teams were going to be pushing mail. The third team would be pushing the long haul uh, C1 uh, for the client. Uh, the, the C1 uh, uh, runs, you know, going to Herat, going to Kandahar, going to Lash-Gagar. uh I mean, Spin Boldak, Skin, Organee. I mean, yeah, if Jalalabad, yeah, Jalalabad. Uh if there was a site where uh uh the client had a uh its own little secure compound, we drove there. Uh so but yeah, the mail was important because they loved it. It was like, man, you guys are so reliable. You guys are predict I mean, you guys are so reliable, you get the you get it here no matter what. i think we had like a ninety eight percent uh success rate on our drops. There's a couple of times we had to burn mail trucks and uh but that was due to enemy action. Uh, but I think my best mail run, I mean, just to emphasize the importance of it. I mean, it was 22 December, like three days before Christmas. We're driving down to Gardez. Usually Gardez only gets two mail trucks, but now they were getting five. And I mean, we drove in there. And then we, they saw and the Army saw all these mail trucks. And then we were like the Pied Piper. They all come out of nowhere and they're all following us. As we get to the mail, uh, as we get to the post office, line up all the trucks, switch out the boxes, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, they really, you you, could, you knew that they were looking forward to that mail call because it was a huge mail call. So
1: delivering the mail uh, for the military wasn't uh, one of their top priorities. Uh, they always had uh, other missions that took precedence like Hunter Killer or... Uh, search and destroy uh, recon whatnot so the mail would sit for uh, several several days without being delivered and so and it's not just mail that's being delivered it's outgoing mail as well and so uh, once uh, they got the contract that's when they they kind of dubbed us the Pony Express um, and then we were actually uh, successful in quite a few of these missions um, I, I would say that our losses, were minuscule in comparison to the amount of stuff that we actually did, uh, that we did, uh, deliver because of the fact that, uh, we can't allow, we might know that we're delivering the mail, but we don't know what the contents of that mail is. Could it, could it be, a uh, uh, cash, um, uh, could it be other things? Uh, you know, we had secure loads, uh, that, uh, were tagged onto a lot of those missions too. So we're delivering ammo, uh, food, fuel, uh, weapons, sometimes vehicles. Uh, sometimes we'll run missions without a manifest because we don't know what it is. And that's how classified the mission is. Um, but we were the only ones that were ever able to get the job done. And then when we, a lot of places that we went to, maybe some ODA outposts, operational detachment, alpha, special forces, and whatnot, those guys, they loved us, man. They, I mean, they ah. took great care. Uh, you know, they uh, helped us with medical supplies, they fed us. Uh, anything we needed they would help us out with um they took care of us because we were taking care of them
0: what yeah. was it that you guys were doing that previous organizations weren't able to do
2: i you know what they i never they never told us why we got it wasn't like
1: all right well, I, I can tell you i can tell you a couple of things like uh another uh convoy service is called the four horsemen yeah uh, they were running uh food and fuel convoys as well but they when they ran their convoys they ran like 4 or 500 trucks at a time and so it's a slow moving process and they and they got hit quite often um so uh, they they weren't reliable in that context uh two they weren't vetted um they were a local national company that would uh, run by expats but it was primarily uh an Afghan company so you can't you can't trust them with the uh, any kind of a, a secure load like that. Um, and then there was really nobody else uh, in early on in 2009. There weren't a lot of uh, contract uh, contractors there that were available to do it. And then once we started doing it and we had uh, uh, a great deal of success, two things happened. One, we started getting more missions, but uh, two, we also became uh, uh, primary targets as opposed yeah. as opposed to secondary targets. And we actually got to a point where there was a bounty on yeah. our heads, uh, to run these missions. So it was, it was, it got, it got worse before it got better. Oh
2: yeah. Yeah. Uh, shoot. I remember, uh, yeah, Matt, I mean, a couple of times, uh, he got, he got hit. And one time he had to burn a mail truck and Craig had to burn a mail truck because of ambushes. Uh, you know, one time, uh, Matt, uh, he was running his convoy and, one of the mail truck drivers, the Afghan driver, flipped the truck on its side. And uh, so now they're cross-loading the mail. He pops open one of the other mail, bo- uh, mail trucks, cuts the seal, cuts the seal on the down truck. They're they're cross-loading all the uh, mail. And that's when they got lit up. I think that was an opportun- uh, ambush of opportunity right there because, uh, you know, Right then and there, boom! All right, we gotta go. So they had, they had to burn what was left of the mail in that truck, and then uh, they had to get, get make their way to Jalalabad, and then uh, same thing happened to Craig on a uh, Craig Smith. Uh, I think an IED knocked out the uh, engine of the uh, one of the mail trucks. It was immovable. He's cross loading mail, and uh, then the ambush hits, and then uh, so he had to fight his way off. And before he left, he had to burn the truck. Which is weird though, because I got Craig on one phone talking to him. I'm like, dude, burn the truck. No matter if, if you think you need to burn that truck, you burn it. And I'm talking to the guy that owns the truck company, uh, an Afghan, Mr. Suleiman, and he's like, no, please don't burn my truck. Please don't burn my truck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, dude, I don't care what anybody says. I got your back. Burn that truck if you need to burn the truck. And uh, yeah, I think yeah, he, he ended up burning the truck. And uh, but he made he got he got the uh, rest of the uh, mail to the Jalalabad. Yeah, so. we
1: burned one when Mark's team got hit coming out of J-Bad. So I uh, I mean they'd already dropped their load off, but now they're they're uh, picking up outgoing mail that's yeah. uh, supposed to be transported to Bagram, processing, and uh, it was just the one mail truck out of three. Uh, but you know the, those trucks are huge and they're they're full of mail. So you know you got to think about all that stuff that was. Uh, getting sent home and uh obviously that that's secondary in your mind because you're you're worried about uh, uh the casualties et cetera. but uh yeah if that that truck actually caught fire on its own but we threw some thermite grenades in there uh just to uh, uh exacerbate the burning process so to speak yeah. so because you can't you can't sit around on these uh on these uh exits for any time at all because they'll take
2: advantage of it.
0: Well, Ed, you mentioned Matt. So talk to me about the uh, the journey where you lost Matt and Chris then.
2: You know, I first met Chris, uh, Jesus, uh, you know, uh, first met Chris, what, in June or July of uh, 2010. Uh, and now my I've been running some uh, other missions and stuff as a team leader still after uh, I'd gotten hit in April 2010. And I lost those two guys. Uh, for and Perro, now it's like June or July, and I got a new ATL. All right, and so I'm looking at Chris, I'm talking to him, and then uh, we go in to talk director because uh, I you got a mission coming down, going to talk director, and he's like, All right, you're going back into skin. And, and I think a lot of people were uh sitting there saying he's gonna quit when you tell him that. Uh, but uh, the color, I mean, from, from what they all said. The color drained out of my face. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, Talked to Chris. I was like, all right, we got to get over to Phoenix. I got to go talk to the uh, S2 over there, and I got to get on the SIPR uh, uh, net so I could talk to the guys down in uh, Sharona, the road-clearing crew, and see when they're clearing those routes. So I get down there, and I'm talking to the uh, platoon commander of the uh, uh, on the, over the phone. I'm talking to the platoon commander. And uh, of the route clearing team. And he's like, oh yeah, we're going to be there from this day to this day. And I was like, that's when I'm going to be in there. All right, this is going to work out just great. Boom. We do the mission. We push into the valley. Uh, Sure than shit. The one guy, the first guy I meet is that lieutenant. I shook his hand and uh, we talked for a few minutes. And then uh, he's talking to the Apache helicopters. They fly over us. They mark us. They say, all right, we we know what they look like. We're going to keep an eye on these guys. So, So I was like, Dude, This is gonna to be too goddamn easy. We get down there, uh, we had our uh, we, we did the Organee drop, then we had to pick up these huge generators, but then we had to cross deck them onto these bigger, uh, off-road, uh, like the Mercedes, uh, and come and Kamaz trucks that can handle the uh, off-road conditions because uh, that road between Organee and skin is like a dirt track pretty much, and uh. So, yeah, uh, there was a bit of drama with that because one of the trucks with the big generator on it, he got a flat. Now the truck's sitting at an angle like this, the generator shifting. So about every half hour we had to stop, hook up a strap to one of the other uh, cargo trucks and snap it so it would shift the uh, generator so the truck would sit level for a little while. Uh, we ended up getting into... a uh, uh uh skin at about uh a well, quarter to midnight. I remember that because we we did it with 15 minutes to spare. We get in there, they took the uh tr- controller trucks and I'm just sitting there looking at that one truck that's leaning like that. I was like, I'm going to laugh my ass off. That thing just falls on its side in the yard. Too bad. Uh but they were appreciated uh, they appreciated those two generators because uh I guess they were having problems with their other one to keep their site running. So uh, yeah, but that was my my first intro to Chris. I mean, he was always on it, making sure everything was strapped down. Uh, I, I was handling all the uh, ops details. Uh, real good dude. He was a former Marine machine gunner, and uh, he fought in Fallujah. Uh, yeah, uh, so we did a couple missions together there, and then we went up to Fob Tiger, then to Fob Hadrian to drop off supplies. Then we had to come back down. Uh, no, he's just a solid dude. And then uh, Team Five, uh, that team leader, uh, he was, that he was—that was his first time going into the valley to skin. He—they just got the uh, the mission assigned to him. So I was like, "All right." And it was our SOP back then. Uh, last team through uh, the valley, you go ahead and give up your uh, ATL because the ATL, the assistant team leader, is also the navigator. So I could show them the routes and the do's and the don'ts. And uh, so Chris and Matt were up on the uh, lead vehicle. And uh, uh, that's when that uh, they, they hit that IED and uh, it, it just flipped the truck up on its back end. And uh, you could see it just sitting up on its back rear bumper. And it was like, wow. Uh, the three gunners walked away from it. But uh, Matt and Chris were killed instantly. Matt wasn't buck belted in, so he was blown out of the vehicle. Chris was belted in, so he was still in the vehicle. And uh, the team leader made the call to leave Chris in the vehicle once he recovered Matt. And uh, we asked him why. I mean, his story is so full of holes. Uh, it was like, uh, you know, pretty much it. It came down to the team leader didn't do his damn job, and uh, he he just probably he he probably needed just to be. I mean, I wanted to hurt him. And I mean, just to sit here when we're debriefing him and uh, what happened, what he was saying on the telephone at the time when he was calling back to us saying, hey, I've been hit versus what actually happened were two totally different things. Yeah, he said the vehicle was on fire. Yeah, he said the vehicle was on fire. He said they were under fire. So when we first heard that, we're like, all right, well, that's understandable. Uh, but then, uh, when they, uh, when, 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 they, uh, recovered the body and they brought him back, he wasn't burnt at all. He was just missing his, he was just missing a, uh, lower leg and his right arm, uh, from the blast coming up through the floor. Uh, and we're like, this is, this does not jive with what you said. And, uh, we wanted to, um, I wanted to hurt him. Uh, Rector wanted to fire him. But corporate was like, once again, this goes into the business aspect of war, too, while we're talking about it. Corporate was like, ah, eh, we don't want a lawsuit. So what we're going to do, we're just going to stick him on a static site and uh, forget. Uh, hopefully he won't screw that up. Uh, but he ended up screwing that one up, too, because I ended up taking over that static site when I got done with the roads. And I was like, Jesus. Yeah, he, he was a piece of work
0: just to jump in there just when i was reading that one chapter the the initially being unclear of as if he was definitely 100 percent killed on impact yeah. i forget how you worded it what was that yeah that you had this image of the last moments of his life yeah. watching the truck pulling away
2: yeah because uh nobody confirmed the remains the, the team medic didn't go up into the vehicle and say all right he's dead uh or at least look in there and say all right yeah no he doesn't all right he's dead nobody did that uh so they never so for all we know the last sound he heard on this before he went the last sound he heard was that convoy driving away leaving him so uh yeah, it's it's hard for a lot of us to choke down because uh,
1: you know I, I a lot of times you can't you can't chalk this up to fog of more um, uh, you know, you're trained to do a mission. You're trained to react to a mission. You're trained to do all of these things. And, uh, none of that stuff happened on that, on that one run. And, and, you know, to hear one thing and then find out it's something else, then, you know, you're now you're second guessing everything and, and whatnot. So, uh, it's difficult, you know, cause we, we stay in touch with all these people and these family members, they're still pissed off, you know, oh, yeah. a, a, about what, what, what went on. And, um, uh, how do you console somebody when, when you're not in control, you know? Um,
2: so yeah, it was bad. It was a bad yeah. thing all the way around. And, uh, oh yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, yeah. And I, I, I still can't, well, I mean, I'm, I'm still, but then I'm surprised that he was at the very least he didn't get fired. But I mean, once again, I mean, when you stuck getting into a civilian contract, you're getting into the business side of war, and you know they want to mitigate uh, their risk, their liability, so they don't want a wrongful termination lawsuit, so they're going to go ahead and uh, stick him on another job sticking them on stick him on another job where hopefully he won't screw up too bad. is what the mindset was
0: so when I hear people talking about issues in their community their tribe especially if there's you know um stress or even betrayal this for example a law enforcement officer does all the right things and then their department or city turns on them the mental health cost of that is probably one of the least discussed elements probably behind suicides for example um yeah when that happened, you guys have been a cohesive team you're leaning into you know this group that should have done the right thing and then they didn't and then they don't hold the person accountable. what did that do for the rest of the team mentally?
2: oh I mean people were pissed i know uh uh bedford was like dude I can't sleep just thinking about this guy I just can't sleep I mean guys were losing sleep over it uh yeah you know when you
1: when you get uh let's say you find out about, uh, having a terminal illness or, or whatnot, you go through these stages, you know, which is denial and then anger and then, uh, or whatnot. Anger was the first thing that, that popped in these guys' heads. And then when you go for a period of time without sleep, it kind of tears on your emotions even further, you know, because, uh, then now your your own, uh, body is starting to shut down and you're not, uh, you know, you're not 100 percent. Now, these guys staff turn around and still run missions, you know, and they have this on their on their mind and, and, and whatnot. So it it takes a, a greater toll psychologically that a lot of people will actually come out and say so.
0: Hundred percent. Well, I mean, you know, we see it in the fire service, you know, so often, and sleep deprivation is ingrained in what we do. And then you add in—I was just talking to a police officer the other day who was uh, LAPD, which his experience of going through their academy said the bar was set so so high. Then he went to Chicago and spent, uh, I think, it was thirteen years there. Um, and he said it was the opposite, you know, and then you saw what happened with the mayor of Chicago when we got through the last two or three years and what they did to law enforcement. You know, I mean, imagine that you've given everything. And then your city just cuts your legs from under you. I mean, that's, this is a big part of the first responder and military suicide crisis. I think that we don't talk about sleep deprivation and organizational betrayal. Oh, uh, you
1: know, and, and that's why I want to talk about the resilience of some of these guys. Uh, you know, PTSD was probably really low on the on the totem pole because when we talk about the business side of war, the, the the corporate office is making decisions from guys that don't have operational experience. Uh, Two, uh, it's about saving money and, and increasing your profit margin. Um, you know, we uh, ended up replacing expat drivers with third country nationals, and third country nationals with local nationals. And uh, these guys couldn't drive a taxi cab, let alone a tactical vehicle. And and now you got to run these missions with these guys that are, you know, if the window could be rolled down, they'd have it out the window like it was no big deal. But um, you have to you have to adjust to to this uh, this this method of operation, uh, knowing that these guys are making decisions that could affect your your livelihood and and your lives. Um, but you got to deal with it, you know. And it it kind of pisses you off, but you you know you 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 just roll with the punches, you know?
0: Well, while we're talking, Alan, let's go to transition. So you, as we have people watching this now, I can see you're in a firefighter uniform. So talk to me about your decision to transition out of the contracting side and go back into the first responder community.
1: Well, I, uh, I retired, uh, the first time in 2005. And then when I got back from contracting, um, I took a job working, uh, at an urgent care center. Uh, at first I was at Lowe's, um, which was really nice, but it wasn't paying very much money. And then I started doing clinical medicine because it it gave me an opportunity to decompress. But, um, you know, there's always this need to, to serve, to do things, uh, you know, greater than yourselves. I really missed the camaraderie and the brotherhood. And so I, I went back into the fire service. Uh, my certifications might've expired but I was still in uh, in a situation where I could uh, uh, garner up some CE hours and, and uh, get those certifications back. Um, I started working here, and, uh, you know, I love it. Um, uh, I'm getting ready to transition again from uh, 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 an operations suppression lieutenant into uh, logistics, so that's going to uh, be a lot easier on me because now I'm at the age where I, sh- I just can't kick doors in anymore, you know. Um I uh, became an engineer, so that kind of helped out a little bit. But uh, now I'm I'm probably going to go over to logistics, and then uh, retire a third time.
0: Logistics would be a forty-hour week, so you finally get off shifts as well.
1: Yeah, and uh, weekends off, so spending more time with the family and whatnot. So that's that's that that's going to help.
0: Now, what about? the emotional slash mental health side for you? I mean, we've gone through, you know, pretty storied career from early EMS into combat and then out the other end. What have been your highs and lows for you specifically?
1: I really never had any issues uh, about it until we started. uh, uh, Well, there was a a guy, you know, we talked about Money Mike earlier and he uh, was pulling security on a, on some movie sets in Louisiana and he had met some people that said, Hey, this would be a great idea for like a mini series or something like that. So uh, they hired a writer named uh, Michael Sokol, I believe it was um, who started writing uh, some episodes, but at, he stopped after maybe three episodes and two things that happened. One, it, it, it became a little bit, uh, you know, it was based on a true story as opposed to an actual true story. You know I mean? They came up with things. So I, that, that wanted to generate interest, like having females on runs or, or recovering a load that had a large amount of money in it and things like that. So we didn't do any of that stuff. Yeah. Well, we're trying to, trying to expand the storyline and we want to, we want to, uh, uh, broaden the audience, so to speak. And, and, and we weren't really happy with it. So after he quit writing, uh, me and Ed talked about just putting it into a book. Um, and so he, he had all the mission specs, um, he had his memoirs. I had a journal. And we just kind of combined the two together and created this timeline uh where it was actually a a product that we could actually uh come up with. And and the cool thing about it, was it really therapeutic for us because we were talking to each other and we were discussing the admissions and you know going through some emotions and and then we had the incident where Sean Bland had uh, uh committed suicide. And and so then we kind of backtracked, figured out how are we gonna fit this into the story and, and, and give him, you know, the credit that was due because he was obviously suffering through a lot of stuff as well. And and we have a little group that we keep in touch with on Facebook where everybody can, uh, you know, uh, rehash memories and, and talk about stuff and, and post pictures and whatnot. And, and, uh, you know, we celebrate birthdays and, and, uh, eventually, uh, we lost, uh, uh, Sean and, and, and uh, Nick and then uh, uh, uh I was thinking uh uh Opie yeah yeah we met up in Dallas uh him and I uh went to Dallas and we were talking about the book we were still in the uh editorial phase and he came down because he was driving truck and then uh it was like six months later we found out he had a heart attack and he was only forty four years old ah. and you know, so we it's just it was just kind of weird, you know, because, you know, these guys and and, and then uh, Greg Swanson Proxima uh, passed mm-hmm. away and it is you know, so we, we stay in touch and, you know, we deal with it as it as it comes along. But I think writing the book probably was the biggest benefit for both of us, yeah, you know, because we had our own issues and, and whatnot. And so but uh, definitely what we learned is talking about it, writing about it is, is the way to go. You know, you want to do something constructive. Put it down on paper. You know, even if, yeah, even if it doesn't materialize, uh, it's
2: helpful.
0: Absolutely. Well, Ed, back to you. Your what made you transition out, and then let's let's walk through your uh, emotional May, journey.
2: May two thousand eleven. Uh, team one, Bedford's team, took a bad hit. The lead gun truck ran over a uh, culvert that was packed with explosives, and uh, definitely was an amateur hour because the Op when they figured it out was about 300 meters away, and for them, well, and they were probably running at about 70 miles an hour. So for them to time it like that, saying "yep, yep, yep," and now boom, just hit that lead truck just like that. Boom! It flipped the truck upside down, uh, pinned the driver underneath uh, the truck. Uh, everybody else was killed. Uh, yeah, five bed- guys. Yeah. Five guys. We lost five on that one. Uh, you know, Bedford had to stay there to just to make sure, uh, the driver, uh, Ben was recovered. He wasn't going to leave him. Uh, his vehicle was jacked up because, uh, they ran into the crater. So that only left the trail vehicle, the docks vehicle. So they loaded all the casualties into there and drove back to Gosney and, uh, uh, you know, it ended up, they ended up losing everybody. Uh, uh, and it took like about five took most of the day to get a QRF out to them. Uh and then from, we found out later on that Q, the QRF out of Ghazni was pretty damn busy that day. And once again, you're a civilian contract, you make the big bucks, but you're not a priority for the military unless it's an actual DOD contract and you're supporting that mission. Uh yeah, but I remember uh we brought got all the bodies back, uh the Afghans, we Got back to their families, uh, and there was such a big crowd there I couldn't get in close, so I had to have our admin chief, uh, Emmerdeen. He got over there, and he, I had him. So you got to look, and you have to confirm. I mean, this is a young kid. He's, I think he was only like twenty years old. I was like, you have to confirm and tell me who they are because I can't get in close. They're not going to let me. The families weren't going to let me close. So he would jump up. Hey, it's, it's a. Uh, it's Timor. All right. And then you'd see Timor's family uh grab him and uh, you know, and then no, it's uh Muhammad's family. No, it's Waris's families. uh uh so he could he he confirmed the bodies for me. And then I followed the ambulance to the morgue out in Kabul for uh Ness and uh Ben. And uh that's when it hit me. I'm sitting there going through these pockets. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm the next one on this slab if I don't get out of this shit. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, it scared the shit out of me, actually. But, you know, you still had to get it done. And uh, I wasn't going on vacation for another month because we just lost a team. We had to put a headquarters team together because it was the lead vehicle that got hit. I just made sure I was up in the lead vehicle so nobody else could complain and uh, say, well, I'm not riding up the lead vehicle. I'm up in the lead vehicle. I mean, if you don't want to r- ride the relief vehicle, go home. And uh so uh but I knew right then and there when I was uh going through those pockets, uh that I had to get out because if I if not, I was gonna be the next one on next one on the slab. So went home on vacation. Uh I knew I I, I didn't want to walk away from it just yet because I knew I could still pay off some bills and tie off a lot of loose ends if I went to a static site. And uh, I remember talking to Scott Brown, and he's like, yep, we got something for you. And that's when I took over. They just fired Tucker, and I was going down there to replace him. So finally they were able to fire his ass, but he was just such a screw-up.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I, I was in uh, uh, Kandahar on a uh, Task Order 1 mission. And, uh, Ed was at, uh, Hadrian and we were kind of talking about it. And then uh, when I had applied for, uh, this job of a convoy job, it was with a company called Reed. And, uh, all I could do, the recruiter was telling me, yeah, we just lost five guys. Uh, it's a very dangerous mission. Uh, I said, okay, well, I was looking for something and I, so I took it and I went from, uh, uh Kandahar to Dubai, got my work visa. Uh, five days later I was in, uh, in Kabul when uh, uh, Vince Cologne picked me up from, uh, yeah. from the airport and he was working for Reed and they took me over to the compound and there it was, man, my old job from SOC uh, was, was taken over on an acquisition by Reed. And so I was working a new contract, but some of the same guys were there. Alex was still there. Yep. Uh, Michael was there. Domingue was there. Um and the trucks were black instead of white. And, you know, they had painted them black so they could run night missions and whatnot. So I, I, I kind of felt like I was at home and I was really happy, but then I found out that uh, one of my friends, Ness had, uh, was killed on that mission. And yep. that that's when it hit me. I was just going, damn, you know, cause I, I didn't know um, that Ness had been killed. And then, and so that was the job that I actually talked to. And then when Ed came back, uh, from Hadrian on his way out, they stopped off at the compound. And that's – if you see the picture on the back of the book, that's the picture that him and I took. <laughs> that's the last time we were together
2: there.
0: Beautiful. Well, yeah.
1: Ed,
0: what, what about emotionally? What were your highs and lows?
2: Oh, like I said, the lows, anytime you took a bad hit, I mean, you're like, God damn, man, because you get that sinking feeling in your stomach, and you're like – I mean – you're glad you came out on the other side, but man, you just lost guys. You saw guys, saw your guys get hit. Uh, yeah, it, it takes a toll on you. Uh, you don't realize it at the time though, because you're around everybody else with the same mindset. Uh, so wasn't until I, uh, yeah, wasn't until like a couple of years after I came home and I was just like, I went through all like, a, I was like, ah, oh, damn man. Uh, I think that's when I had to refight the demons and stuff for about a couple for a while. But uh I think what put it all uh what was uh, most therapeutic for me was uh January 2017 I made that I said to myself this is the year we're going to get a book written. And uh that's when I reached out to L and uh we got the uh we started putting everything together and it was just very helpful. Uh the the it was therapeutic just to put pen to paper and uh, you know uh, of course it took us five years to get the book published because of uh, you know, you got a couple of cavemen with crayons writing books. So, (laughs) But uh, uh, yeah, definitely uh, you know, the highs and lows, you know, like you you get hit and you're coming out on the other side and you're still standing. Yeah. That, that, that is a high, but then the lows are like, when your friends are getting getting killed and getting hurt, you're like, God damn, man. Uh, what the hell am I doing wrong? Is it me? Uh, but sometimes it's just, that's the nature of war. I mean, shit. We had bounties <laughs> on our, we were targets. We knew we were targets. And, uh, but we said, you know, we're going to get this job done. Uh, yeah. I think, uh, one of the things that we
1: talked about was, uh, a lot of the guys that had been through some of the same things that we did, they, they always second guess themselves. Like, uh, do I have this psychological resilience that, that makes me immune to this type of, uh, uh, suffering? Uh, and so then you start to wonder if there's something wrong with you because you're not, you know, you're not having these flashbacks. You're not looking into a bottle. You're not, you're not doing uh, stuff that other people have done in the past. Um, and so then you start to question your own, your own mental fortitude as opposed to, uh, what's really, uh, happening. You know, what's the truth about uh, what you're dealing with? I I didn't have nightmares. I had, I had like the TTPs for the longest time. Uh, you know, if I'm driving down the road and I saw a dead animal or something like that, I would kind of skirt to the left and, you know, my wife's going, what are you doing? Or I would uh, pull into a gas station and I'm checking everybody out front and back. Cause I, you know we're used to dominating these fuel stations when we're fueling up and, and and it was just kind of weird how that that stuff kind of stuck with you when you, when you got back home and people were going you, they start to think oh what's going on what's what's the matter with you <laughs> whatever the case may be but it, it was really just a, a a question of good habits that being transitioned over into a civilian uh side that they kind of carried over which you know i look back at it and i kind of laugh about it but um you know um we had to deal with some family members. Uh, you know, when Sean, when Sean, I uh, had killed himself. You know, his his mom was really curious about what was going on, and and uh, you know we wanted to honor him in a way that uh, was was respectful, and uh, so we created that chapter for Farewell Docs because all these guys were docs and and uh, and whatnot. And I think that uh, the, a little bit more pressure is kind of put on them. Uh, because they're they're faced with the you know the trauma of the event and then they have to you know go into rescue mode uh and and try to save these guys and then they end up losing these guys and you know I think Clint quit after that hit in gosney Um yeah he he uh just he couldn't handle it and, and we tried to stay in touch with him but he's just off grid. You know, so there's there's a lot of things that we think about. Um, um Arnie uh when uh, when they evacuated uh, Afghanistan, he was one of the guys that was kind of left behind. But, he, you know, he's a he's an SAS guy, but, we know, he can take care of himself. Um, and, and it wasn't a matter of time before he went back in and just got another job contracting. And that was his way for getting out of the country. So we really didn't have to worry about that. But, you know, it's it there's always something in the back of your mind. And it's not like we're trying to suppress it. It just doesn't it just doesn't surface, you know so
0: ed you made the comment about um you know the people around you going through the same thing that's what i talked about in the fire service you know we we're horrible barometers at how we're doing because we're all in the same you know meat grinder together so it's amazing how
2: you're all the same level so everything looks normal exactly looks normal it's like oh yeah i'm fine if if he's fine i'm fine but now you take those same me and that other guy you take us and put us in the, the people will be like god damn man you guys are What's going on here?
0: So exactly, yeah,
2: uh, yeah. Uh, Jesus, yeah. You, you, we are horrible barometers. We we, we are our own worst self evaluators, and uh but we have to be our own. Yeah, and uh you need that outside. You need those outside eyes looking in to say, "Hey, you guys need." Let's take a break here. Let's go ahead and talk about this. Uh, you know, so sometimes that's all it is, is talking and putting pen to paper, and boom, you know, a lot of those, uh, a lot of those issues and feelings will, will, uh, resolve themselves. I don't think they'll ever go away, but, uh, it'll resolve itself to a point where you can, uh, actually develop some tools, find some tools to deal with it a lot better. So for me, it's working out. I mean, I love hitting the gym and, uh, you know, that 30 to 60 minutes of, uh, and to often release, you know, I think it just helps mm-hmm. a lot. So...
0: Uh, Alan, what about you? What What other tools, apart from writing, have you found have been cathartic?
1: Well, just uh, staying busy, you know, on the fire surface is, is so dynamic. It, it changes all the time. You know, we... Uh, w- I work in an a extremely uh, a violent area of town. Uh, so I'm kind of used to it. I think I've become acclimated in some respects, you know, I, I always tell people 50% of the people that I save are criminals, you know, Um uh, but there's so many things to do. Uh, there's all, you know, I, just cause the call's over, uh, we're, you know, we're prepping trucks, we're fixing things, we're cleaning up, we're, you know, we're constantly, uh, moving around. We're, we're, we're staying busy all the time. So there's really never, uh, never any downtime at work. Uh, I think the worst thing that, that's happened with me is the disconnect between me and my own family because I've spent most of my time, uh, being away. Uh, my wife was basically the disciplinarian of the family. And when I came home, if like my son got out of hand and I said something to him, he, he just disregarded it. Uh, I think the problem with me and him was that I was his friend as opposed to his father. And, uh, so he would look to his mother, uh, for advice and, and whatnot. So it, that kind of, that bothered me a little bit. And I, And I think that they they probably understood. uh, But now that I'm back, of course, all my kids are grown now. They have kids of their own and whatnot. So I'm in the grandparent mode. So that really helps (laughs) quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I I don't want to lose touch with my with my brothers. That's the thing. That bond that we made uh, overseas is a lifetime for me. And so uh i cherish that and uh you know me and ed are the best of friends we're 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 gonna stay connected until the day we die you know we even have a clause in our contract where uh, our families will get whatever royalties from the book sales when we're long gone so yeah. you know uh, we want we want to make sure that uh that legacy kind of continues on
0: brilliant well ed for people listening the book is called postcards through hell and it obviously details you, know, you just touched on on a lot of things that are going to be in this story as people are led through. Where are the best places for people to find the book?
2: Amazon, and uh, you can order it on Amazon. It's a it's a print on demand uh, publication. So either order it through Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Uh, those are two- I, there's,
1: there's a Kindle version out, and and we're when our contract is, expires, we're going to uh, work on a audio version. We already have a narrator and everybody in mind so uh um we just have to wait until the contract is done and we'll go ahead and go with an audio version as well
0: brilliant yeah i I wrote my book three years ago and i remember researching it's actually good to let it be a print for a while because then when you do audio it's almost like a re-release of the same book so so yeah that'll be great all right well alan for you i'm sure people you know are, are you know, moved by the journey today that both of you guys have been leading us through. If people want to connect online, where are the best places for you specifically?
1: Well, we we had a uh, a website uh, that was actually quite successful for a while, but we we were told that it needed to be upgraded. And in that process of upgrading, we ended up losing the website, and so now we're trying to get it back together. Where it's uh, kind of under construction right now. Um, we'll probably have the same domain uh name but uh it's in the hands of the uh web developer now so we're on his clock
0: but in the meantime linkedin or any of those best for you instagram? oh yeah
1: linkedin facebook um i yeah, think facebook. uh ed has instagram Got instagram and uh and whatnot so yeah, yeah we have a group we have a group uh, called the pony express on facebook that Uh, We have two groups. One is uh, Pony Express, which is uh, uh, dedicated to just the team members only. There's about 75 of us. And then uh, uh, the Pony Express is where we put information about the book and and people that want to join the group. Of course, we we talk about uh, things uh, through that medium as well.
0: Brilliant. Ed, anything to add?
2: Uh, Really, I mean, you know, uh, shoot, if anything, I mean – Reaching out, talking to people, or you know, once again, if you if you're fighting those demons, uh, reach out, talk to somebody, uh, you know, uh, put pen to paper, you know, and uh, but I think talking to people, uh, talking to somebody, though that way they can help you with tools to deal with those, uh, deal with your fight, to help you win that fight, so yeah i mean but like uh but as for contact uh you know we're on facebook uh linkedin i'm on twitter or x now and then i'll also uh instant i'm also on instagram so uh yeah, if anybody wants to reach out so
0: brilliant well i want to thank you both so much i mean such a story career before your paths even crossed which has been you know really powerful to hear but I don't, I don't think i've ever heard a story of you know the men protecting the male you know that got to our men and women that were you know wanting that connection with the outside world and obviously some of the things that were being transported i'm sure were important to the mission as well but uh so yeah so i want to thank you so so much for firstly writing the book and secondly being so generous with your time and coming on the podcast today
1: oh thanks for having us i appreciate
2: it uh, thanks for having us